We have this one life to appreciate the grand design of the universe and for that I am extremely grateful. The Interplanetary Podcast The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind Your hosts here in London Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin Oh yeah baby Stephen Hawking I mean is there anyone greater? I thought you thought David Bowie was. I hope they're up there together in space. Oh, singing space songs. What a beautiful image. Stephen Hawking. What genius. Jamie, Jamie, it's the 18th of October when this comes out. And the 18th of October is the anniversary of Pappus of Alexandria observing a solar eclipse. Get out of here. In the year 320. Pappas is a good name, isn't it? Here's another anniversary, 1963. Remember when we talked about Felicity, the little black and white female Parisian stray cat that became oh, the remember. first cat to go into space? Oh, poor Felicity. She must have been absolutely <laughs> terrified. <laughs> yeah, but I suppose if she got a little treat when she, when she I've got, got back, one for you. Okay. I've got one for you, Matt. 1967. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Soviet probe, Venera 4, reaches Venus and becomes the first spacecraft to measure the atmosphere of another planet. Jay's birthday today as well. What? Yeah. Happy birthday, yeah, yeah. Jay. You rock and roll superstar. Yeah, you hear him every every episode playing a bit of bass at the beginning there. So, job done. We don't owe him any royalties, do we? Nah. Yeah, well, we probably do, Good. but let's brush over that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you happened to see some of the press releases that were came out of New Scientist Live. Yet another event we failed to get to. We failed to get to STEC or um New Scientist Live this year because of just I must have missed work, what, work problems. What have we got? There's um there was a, a kind of British bid for lunar glory announcement. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of background, Jamie, because I Here think you, you kind of need it. We we've talked about this we've talked about the Lunar X Prize, which is yes. a thirty million dollar prize that was available from two thousand and seven to two thousand and eighteen. So this was a prize that Google were offering to commercial privately funded teams to try and land a robotic spacecraft on the moon and travel 500 metres and transmit a message back to Earth of high-definition video and images. And I think there was even an extra special prize if you could get images of the lunar landing sites from the Apollo missions. All of that was supposed to happen by 2014, Hmm. uh, and a special kind of incentive if you could do it for 2012. So here we are five years later, and there was lots of deadline extensions to that prize money that, of course, went unclaimed, and the competition ended. Yes. But loads of the teams that set up during that competition um, have carried on regardless anyway. They've they've gone on. And, of course, one of the most famous of them is the Space IL team who built Barashit, which came Unbelievably close, of Oof, course. It was close, wasn't it? Making Israel the fourth country ever to land on the moon. And the first, I mean, it would have been historic because it would have been the first um, commercial mission to soft land mm. on the moon. Um, however, they did get a million 
dollars actually as a moonshot award from the X Prize Foundation. So oh, there's still some money every, in the pot. Every there. cloud. Another team from that competition, Astrobotic Technology, that was founded in 2008 by the Carnegie Mellon University, uh, Red Whitaker, uh, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, yes. That's still going. And so if we reel ten forward ten years from two thousand and eight, they passed they, they went past loads of different deadlines and launches, including a SpaceX launch. Never happened. They never built the things that they were going to send on those launches. But on November the twenty ninth, two thousand and eighteen, they were made eligible for NASA's commercial lunar payload services or CLIPS uh, to deliver technology payloads the moon and they've got and they were successful in their bid and have got this 80 million dollar contract to launch Ooh. payloads to the lacus mortis get in. lacus mortis they're going to try and get 14 different payloads there and the first one on july 2021 so this mission in july 21 was announced earlier in 2017 they were the first people to say, we're going to be launching on ULA's new Vulcan rocket. So it's going to be the very first of the Vulcan rocket, the replacement of the Delta. And it's going to be called Mission One. Well, that's what it's called now. It wasn't called Mission One back in 2017. And that's going to carry a 90-kilogram payload to the Lacus Mortis. So what's this payload comprised of then? Well, yeah, so this is this is the cool bit, and we're going to get to the really cool bit in a minute. So, yes, it's actually going to contain a couple of small rovers from other XPRIZE team, actually, the Hakutu from the Japanese XPRIZE team, and then another team called the Team Angelic. I'm not sure whether they were an XPRIZE team. I don't think they were. Mm. Then there's going to be this, a, quite a big rover, 33-kilogram rover from Carnegie Mellon University, and that, that rover's called Andy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and then there's going to be a little tiny um, library that's etched on nickel that uh, basically includes the whole of Wikipedia and the Long Now Foundation's Rosetta project. That's cool. If this happens in 2021, uh, human knowledge up to this point is it has been saved a little bit in a little nickel. Are dot they going to the include any episodes? Of this podcast. Uh, well, of course they will, Jamie. That, that, we need to put it into book form immediately. Presumably essential. Yeah. But the, this podcast almost is the Wikipedia of space, isn't it? Well, how <laughs> In its are entirety. Any, <laughs> how are any little aliens going to get a grasp of humanity without us? I have no idea, yeah. Jamie. I have no Sorry. idea. I think this yeah. this will give you it'll give them a little window into humanity's soul. Yeah. The exciting payload here, announced at New Scientist. Uh, there's a company called Spacebit who who we've mentioned them before because they are kind of using they want to use blockchain technology to democratize mm. space so that all these new space ventures are, are funded by the general public in this transparent um, blockchain technology way. They announced that they've got this little tiny rover, 1.5 kilogram rover that moves on legs Ooh. if anyone had the kids toy might well uh, arthur had this this toy it's a it looks very very similar to the attack nid basically four legs coming out looks kind of like a spider and i think i've um, seen this one yeah it's by the london-based block 
chain botherer's space bit. And this is what Pavlo Danielsyuk said. He said, we could not be more excited to fly this mission with Astrobiotic. This mission will result in the first payload from the UK to reach the moon's surface and bam and mark the beginning of a new era in commercial space exploration for Britain. Is he Welsh? Do you know, I don't know where Pavlo's <laughs> from. I don't think he's from Birmingham anyway. No. Uh, no. Definitely true. Um, the commercial landings, of, of course, it's going to be super historic, right? Think about this. Only government agencies so far have pulled off landings to the moon. And there's already been a couple of failed missions to, to land on the moon. As David Baker said last week, we've kind of, we seem to be plateauing in our in our capabilities here. So mm. it, it, it's going to be very, very stressful where this work. There's a lot of firsts going on, isn't there, for this mission. You've got the first Vulcan rocket. So there's that's not guaranteed. You know, a lot of, a lot of first rockets end up blowing up on the launch pad or yes. going awry. And then you've got a soft landing on the moon, which by all accounts, looks like it's blooming difficult. Don't hold your breath, but it would be unbelievably exciting in 2021 if there's a little attack nid roaming around on the moon with a little oh, tiny British that. flag on it. Well, yeah. I'm keeping it. I'm keeping them all crossed. I, I, I can't believe how much ha has happened this week, Jamie, because I wanted to keep this bit short because I've got I've got uh, an interview yes. uh, to, 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 to pop in. But before we get there, uh, Virgin Orbit, have uh, said that they're going to be sending CubeSats to Mars, which which is actually, Whoa. this could be an extremely exciting piece in itself. What's the story? The Virgin have partnered with Polish universities and a satellite maker called Sat Revolution, or Sat Revolution, uh, to design <laughs> up to <th> to <laughs> to design up to three robotic missions to Mars. In the next ten years, and of course, remember the Marco CubeSats that sort of tagged hmm. along with the Insight mission, which was actually—I mean, Mark, the Marco the CubeSats really were an amazing mission. CubeSats that have gone into deep space, not in orbit around the, the Earth, but literally gone off into deep space, I love and were that. able to yeah, and able to transmit pictures from these tiny little CubeSats from Mars, and actually help relay um the messages from insight rover at uh, the insight uh, lander so that it could say to mission control that it was safe quicker than it would have done if it had it had to have relayed on the satellites so but do we know do we know what the missions are going to be uh, as in no, what are would... these cubesats getting uh, mars sensing data collection i would have thought um i doubt they will just have nothing on them but maybe some, you know, vain uh, narcissistic people might stick bits of DNA on them so that they're so they're preserved in Mars orbit forever or something. Who knows? Could um, be panspermia part two. Just saying. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, um, but I think I think it's it's a killer combination. I think someone said this in the in the comments. It's a killer combination, isn't it? A miniaturized satellite tech combined with cheap launch for exploring yeah. the solar system it kind of Genius. has oh it might well i mean if you think about it this is opening up um solar system exploration to the general public maybe one day the general public will fund you know some university somewhere will put together some cubesat that will fly out to the outer reaches 
of the solar system and go in orbit around a primordial black hole. Now that I can get behind. Imagine how exciting that would be in, in, our, in our lifetime. Well, we could do that, Matt. I mean, how hard can it be? You've built, you've built rockets before. <laughs> I have. I actually yeah. have. Uh, not quite orbital in their capability. Yeah. <laughs> orbital around the park. Uh, yeah, I have I have achieved one kilometre. That's when with... the police were called, wasn't it? Uh, uh, no. Well, actually, I don't know how high that one went. It just went above the cloud cover and I never <laughs> saw it again. <laughs> I seem to remember some military intervention. Mm, no military intervention. Oh. Just the old Bill. Just the old, the old Bill, Bill, Jamie. Okay. Just the old Bill. Um, did you see, and I, did, I actually did sit up to see a little bit of this live, the NASA unveiling the prototype of their new spacesuit. I did see this. It was ace. Yeah. Jim Bridenstine, not only was he doing this, he also went to Capitol Hill, the people that mm. sign the checks for all this stuff. And it doesn't look like they're going to be signing any checks anytime soon for the 2024 timeline. They're yeah. much more happy with the 2028 timeline that doesn't basically involve Trump laying claim that it was all his idea to get people back on the moon. Yeah, definitely. And and putting loads of astronauts maybe at risk of death and stuff. Uh, so yeah. anyway, um, yes, Bridenstine has been showing off uh, a couple of um, new spacesuits, which is very exciting, especially when we, we keep talking about how there's only about 12 spacesuits that have been made in the last 30 years that well, are just kind just of recycled. Say, they, they need to bloody get some different sizes. We know that. Yeah, we do. Although there's some exciting news about that as well. I mean, just never-ending news this week. Uh, yeah, okay. so the, the yeah, Exploration Extravehicular Mobility Unit, XEMU, the XEMU, which I believe is also one of your favourite anime characters. But Yeah, it's uh, true, actually. Yeah. yeah. Maybe even a Pokemon, who knows? Um, but yes, that, <laughs> it's pretty similar to the ones on the International Space Station, although there's that central bit that's like this great big metal bearing, isn't there? And and that's uh, to give improved comfort and, and mobility on the moon. But there was also, quite, I thought quite excitingly, although slightly overshowered, was uh, showered, overshowered, maybe it has been showered. Yeah. Um, it was the Orion crew survival system, which is like yes. an orange, your classic orange flight suit, like the space shuttle ones. Um, obviously, uh, a new and advanced version of it. The orange suits are the best, Matt, because it reminds me of Skywalker. Yeah, yeah, I, it really does, doesn't it? There's, there is something really cool about orange spacesuits. I think yeah. we should knock ourselves up a couple of orange spacesuits for any of our publicity shots. What do you think? I think it'd be rude not to. Well, it, it worked for Tim Dodd, the I'll everyday astronaut. It did. I'm going to start working on a patch. <laughs> Actually, he's had some great interviews recently with Elon Musk and Jim Bridenstine. Um, yeah, there we go. Uh, you know that. So you know, maybe we'll be interviewing Elon Musk and Bridenstine next year if we get ourselves some orange spacesuits. Um, oh, that's what it's got to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. Good on him. Great channel. The, the, there is some news here. So in, you know, back in March we had that all-female mm. spacewalk controversy. Yes. Where, the, where it never happened. Then it was kind of revealed that spacesuits were a little bit sexist and um, there wasn't really enough sizes and you couldn't adjust them so that the two female astronauts could actually go out for their mm. uh, spacewalk. So Anne McLean couldn't go out with Christina Koch 
for their uh, spacewalk. Old Jim Bridenstine has promised a suit that will fit our all of our astronauts when we go to the moon. So there we, there go. we go. Good on you, Jim. But the news about this all-female spacewalk is it's probably going to be happening today as we record this, Jamie. So uh, Christina Koch, yeah, on her fourth walk, and Jessica Mir on her first are going to venture outside the space station at well, some point. Good luck, Christina and Jessica. Yeah, it's going to be quite historical, that. So, um, yeah, hopefully we won't have any of these embarrassing situations again. An engineer called Christine Davis, who is from the JSC in Houston, the Johnson Space Center, mm. wore the XEMU at this presentation. And it had, uh, did you see the lovely red, white and blue sleeves that it had? It was quite cool. Ooh, yeah. One of the big differences between this and the Apollo spacesuits was the ability to reach overhead. So you, you couldn't put your arms above ah. your head before. Okay. And that's because of these bearings that they've put in. So there's lots of bearings in the suit. Uh, one massive one around the waist that's also got a sort of flexion extension joint that gives you the ability to sort of bend over and pick up rocks, which, let's face it, when you go to the moon to to, to, to do a little bit yeah, of science, it's, be done, probably isn't it? quite, it's probably quite important. So, yeah. yeah. So Christine Davis swung her arms around. She did a few squats. I mean, I find squats hard enough as it is without a spacesuit on me, right? Yeah, but I'm glad you're doing that because you've got to work on that behind. I've got to keep you? my bum doit. <laughs> you've got to achieve thickness. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So, so Kate Rubins was nodding in approval as uh, Christine picked up rocks from the stage. Most, mm -hmm. most amusing. The, the good thing here, though, is the suit's sort of made from a fabric that repels the lunar dust, and, and the lunar dust can't get into all these bearings. And That's what happened in the Apollo spacesuits. The lunar mm. dust got everywhere, and lunar dust is nasty stuff. So that's a, a bonus. It's not good, is it? And also these suits don't require pre-beat... Pre-breathing. Remember, we talked about pre-breathing on the interplanetary right. podcast spacesuit special to purge nitrogen. Yeah, so you don't, so you don't get the bends. Great album. Should definitely everyone should definitely get the bends if they haven't. Oh my gosh, that is that is a good album. Possibly my favourite, Jamie. It's, it keeps slipping it's into my favourite slot often. Uh, Hundred percent oxygen environment uh, to avoid the bends, so you can listen to the bends without being in agony as nitrogen bubbles up through your blood. <laughs> mm. So that's a good that's a good thing. So it's yeah, you thing. can live in that spacesuit, which remember spacesuits are essentially a spacecraft, a sort of human-shaped spacecraft, uh, and you can live in that spacecraft for about 8 hours with an extra hour for contingency. Days work, good days work. So if you fell out of a spacecraft, you'd have a long time to contemplate life and the universe you would in that suit um and the other bit the orion crude survival system the your, your favorite orange suits have been tailored yes. to uh to the seat in the orion crew module so they're specifically for the orion capsule uh-huh and we're going to be talking about Soyuz 11 slightly later on because there's a little fact that I didn't know about Soyuz 11 uh, but the Soyuz 11 accident is the only time that astronauts have died in space and uh Pressure suits, these type of internal pressure suits, 
are that's what they're for. They're they're to protect you in these accidental depressurization events during re-entry and and mm. um, and launch. So uh, they're pretty important. And this one apparently, uh, it can it 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 it, it pumps up to eight psi, uh, and then drops down to four point three psi, uh, and you can stay in that suit for six days. Six days. <laughs> six days. Yeah. Um, you know, it'll look at that suit will look after you for six days. So it's a kind of little again little spacecraft that will look after you, but for six days. What was the really sad news of the week, though, Jamie? Oh, well, it's got to be Alexi, isn't it? Oh. It has to be. Do you know Old what? Alexi what's... Leonov. End of an era, Matt. Yeah, I had the chance to meet Leonov. I didn't, couldn't quite make it to a BIS event when he, when he, oh. when he turned up. So um, he re- it, it's one of those things. It's really annoying when, when, you find, when you do a little bit of reading about someone and find out they're more amazing than you first thought. Well, we always do this, don't we? Yeah, and you do that when they die, don't you? It's like well, hopefully we've covered some people who are still alive. I think we have. Yeah, we've actually had Alexi uh, Leonoff quotes at the start of the show, and uh, yeah, we've mentioned him quite true. a few times, of course. So the but last wow. living member of the of the five cosmonauts in Voxhod program. What a shame! You know, the very first cosmonauts ever chosen. We're not going to be sad. We're no, going to we're going to celebrate. So let's. Should we dig into what he's done? Yeah, so on the 18th of the 3rd, 1965, 18th of March, he was the first person to push out of his spacecraft in an inflatable airlock and take humanity's first step into the vast emptiness of space. God, imagine how that would have felt. The first person to hear the hum of his spaceship left behind for the silence of the cosmos. Now that's a line. He's the first person to see the Earth through his helmet, not through a spacecraft window. In all its breathtaking beauty, I think that's one of the quotes we've started the show with, how he describes Earth as a blue marble. The world really is round, is what he thought in his head. For any Take flat that. earthers out flat there, earthers, yeah, you... <laughs> um, idiots. He had a spacesuit called the Golden Eagle, which was pretty minimum spec, and so literally just about good enough that you can survive in the absolute brutality of open space. But while he's floating there in 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 this beautiful pristine silence, the silence is broken by none other than Brezhnev himself, who sort of checks mm. in radio, sort of says, how's everything going, Alexei? And Alexei basically lies through his teeth and say, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. <laughs> but it's not, of course. At the time, his spacesuit's yeah. inflating. Um, and this is, I mean, amazing pioneering work because every single spacesuit design after this is is. Uh, takes this into consideration, but the space obviously is inflating yes. against the vacuum of space. And his hands were falling out of the gloves. The whole spacesuit became insanely st- uh, stiff. You've mm. got to work against everything, but you don't have gravity to push against. So actually it's the lack of gravity that makes it even more strenuous to work. Um, and then he starts getting cooked in his 
in his spacesuit because he's in direct sunlight and he's getting so hot and sweaty that the spacesuit is actually starting to fill with sweat, like literally <laughs> fill up with sweat. He's me been nervous com- just saying it. Yeah, he's been completely blinded by the sunlight. He sort of describes how pitch black space is, but how full of sunlight it is as well. And mm, just how many stars yeah. you see, but everything is pitch but, black. But Matt, stars only come out at night. Yeah, that's that is true, isn't it? <sighs> Even though all this is going on, he still pushes off from the spacecraft and um, and uses him, his umbilical cord to stop drifting off into space. So he's he's trusting mm. this this uh, connection to his spacecraft. He then films his own spacewalk. So another first there. Pulls himself back to the spacecraft, and of course, the worst problem is he uh, he can't get back in. Yeah, that's not good, is it? No, that that's particularly bad. So normally, the protocol would be to call down to mission control and say, "What the hell do I do here?" But he just took matters into his own hand, calmly vented his spacesuit, which of course is risking death and getting the bends and all sorts of things mm. so he's but he's decided look the only way i'm getting in is to is to vent some of this stuff off so he vents out his spacesuit manages to remain conscious goes feet first into the airlock when you're supposed to go head first which means he has to do a somersault <laughs> when he gets to the end to shut the hatch behind him God so damn. yeah and then it's not over there, Jamie. So it, it's, no. he's like he's got a space. He's now in a spacesuit full of sweat, and uh, and then his his partner in the Soyuz capsules turns around to him and says, "Oh, by the way, the uh, we're going to have to we have to go manually back in back down to Earth." So they uh, have to kick into manual, and because they're in manual mode, they do manage to get uh, do uh, re-entry, but they end up in the, somewhere sort of like in, the, in, in like the middle of the Ural Mountains where it's all snowy and they almost freeze to death while they wait for rescue. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's all you need, isn't it, when you get back to Earth? Oh, my God. But some interesting facts about... Uh, I mean, clearly that's one of his m- most remarkable achievements. He also went on to uh, be the first the first Soviet in space to shake hands with an American astronaut um, uh, during the Apollo-Soyuz test mission, which, of course, has ah. paved the way for Mir and the International Space Station. So incredibly yes. important mission in itself. Of but course. as a child, he actually was this really keen artist. He, he really did want to do oh, art yeah. and stuff. Uh, even And then he found himself as a fighter pilot. But, yeah, as we said, he was in the first group of cosmonauts, which include the great Yuri Gagarin, who became one of his best friends, like a, 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 described as a brother. And one of Gagarin's darkest moments is when, sorry, when one of uh, Leonov's darkest moments is when Gagarin died in a plane crash, not not that long after he's done his historic mm. first man in space bit. Uh, and it was Leonov that helped search for the body and and he was the person that identified the the remains uh and and he's done a lot of artwork apparently about that that day of searching through the trees and and things so it's obviously something that haunts him i'd like all to the see time. some yeah no leonoff's artwork is incredible actually it's really really good not only does he paint a lot of uh images of when he's doing his spacewalk but he does lots of sort of 
really scientifically accurate um, paintings. They're really, they're really are quite cool. A little bit, nice. I suppose, a little bit dated in some ways, but a lot of well, art from that era is. But it'll come back yeah. round, won't it? That that kind of thing. Of course. But really, Leonov became the kind of uh, Russian equivalent of Neil Armstrong as well. So mm. when they were they were literally at the same time competing to get to the moon, it would have probably have been Leonov who would have been the Neil Armstrong. It was Leonov, for example, who was flying helicopters where you switch off the blade rotation and try mm. and land it. Uh, from uh, with just the 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 runoff of the blade, and apparently that yes. that simulates quite well the lunar landing, but it's incredibly dangerous. He did it about nine times, so very similar to what um, Armstrong used to do in the flying bedpost. Um, mm. But because and, and this is Korolev himself died from a routine operation, and that basically meant that they never really got the N1 flying. You could really put it down to that one event, which meant that Leonov never became the first man on the moon and Armstrong pipped him to the post. But Leonov also never went to the moon at all. That's a little bit of a sad sad miss for, for Leonov himself. But Armstrong, I think, is equally equally cool. Um, I, lo I, lo I love both these, he was, both these people. Definitely was. You know. Well, they, he missed out. Now, you know I mentioned Soyuz 11 and a little story I didn't mm. know about this. So Soyuz 11, Leonov, uh, when he was sort of looking around the capsule, he sort of said to himself, ooh, I don't trust the automatic um, vents that happen during re-entry and, mm. and advised the cosmonauts who were flying that mission that they should actually maybe operate them manually. Uh, they forgot about that when they were doing their uh, re-entry and it did go wrong and they, and they all died. Uh, Jesus. Uh, and Leonov apparently felt really guilty, even though it, no, he knew it wasn't his fault, but apparently he, he, and he, he carried them. that. Yeah. He, and he warned them. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, the weird thing is it should have probably been Leonov that was flying, but his partner got it. Well, they thought his partner was ill. So they took, they bumped those two off the mission and it was the substitutes that died. I think it was the substitutes that died in Soyuz 11. So maybe that accident wouldn't ha have happened had it have been Leonov flying because he would have he would have done the venting himself. So mm. maybe we wouldn't have had any fatalities in space. So God, yeah. yeah, crazy. He's a pretty remarkable character, and he sort of became a Sagan type character as well, uh, doing books. And lots of paintings, lots of articles and stuff like that. He was a massive advocate of what a creative uh, science. Legend. Yeah. And he did one painting that looks very similar to a, an iconic moment in 2001 Space Odyssey. And he joked with Arthur C. Clarke. He sort of said to Arthur C. Clarke, oh, that's very much like my painting. And while talking to him, did a, a sketch of his painting. And that sketch, Arthur C. Clarke had forever above his desk. Uh, and as a tribute to uh, Leonov, 2010 A Space Odyssey, the one of the spaceships is called the Cosmonaut Alexei Leonov. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Beautiful so little wrote, nod there. Yeah, he wrote a science fiction film, The Orion Loop. And with David oh. Scott, 
he wrote a memoir called Two Sides of the Moon, Our Story of the Cold War Space Race. So David Scott, Apollo astronaut, and Leonov uh, wrote this book, I mean, which I haven't read, but that does sound I extremely... I will do. Yeah, published in 2006. And get this, an introduction by Neil Armstrong and Tom Hanks. Oh, God, uh, double legend. And I bet Tom Hanks wrote his introduction on his typewriter. I bet he did. <laughs> uh, so, yes, he was buried this week, uh, and Tom Stafford turned up to the funeral and made a little speech, very frail now, and said, my colleague and friend, we will never forget you. So, yeah. Aww. Interplanetary Less, condolences well, to his wife, Svetlana, and daughter, Oksana. Well, I think we should tip our caps to what's clearly another absolute ledge. Yeah. So, Jamie, do you want to hear my interview with tech technology journalist Peter Ward, who Let's today, his new hmm. book, The Consequential Frontier, has come out and it explores commercial space. I'd love nothing more. Let's roll it. Ecoute. I am joined on the podcast by Peter Ward, whose book, The Consequential Frontier, is out later in October. Have you got an exact date for us for that? Uh, yeah, it's out in October 15th. October the 15th. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, so, yeah, this the, the, the book is a challenge to the privatisation of space. Can you kind of give us an, an overall picture of what that, what that challenge is? Uh, I'm as excited as anyone by... The private companies doing excellent things in space. Um, it, it's all, you know, really exciting stuff, and the way that they've they've moved things on. But I kind of realised that nobody had taken a a moment to kind of pause and and look at this and see if there's more we could do to make sure that this happens in the, in the best way possible. Um, and, and one of the examples I looked at um, actually was the start of the internet. Hmm. Where you see all these, uh, I mean, the internet originally started as a, a, a military thing, and then um, the academics took over. And as it became more and more commercial, and, and uh, companies became more and more involved, it, it, it's it's evolved into what we have today. Which I think, for the people who first started the internet, isn't what they imagined it would be. Um, hmm. You know, we have a lot of issues, <laughs> surveillance and things like that. Um, so, so there is a kind of um, I think there are comparisons you can make to, to space in that way, and that we're now it's now possible to make a clear business case for for working in space and, and putting companies in space. Um, and w really, the book is about exploring the potential pitfalls of that and uh, and examining what we can do to to stop them. So, I, I guess a really good place to start, just like you do in the uh, in your book is the Outer Space Treaty. It seems that that's a sort of... Is the, am I right in saying that's kind of like a cornerstone of, of, the, of, the, of the narrative of this book? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's bizarre that it's, it's still the kind of... Um, the document that, that tells you what you can and can't do in space. Um, for example, it tells you that you can't colonise another planet or the moon. You can't claim any part of, a, of another part of space. Um, but it was it was written and signed in, in 1967, um, so it's obviously pretty outdated by this point. That's before we'd even set foot on the moon. 
Um, and it obviously didn't have any any reference to the private sector because it just wasn't that big then, the, the private sector in space. So you've got this kind of old treaty, um, which is full of loopholes and was written purposefully to include loopholes so, so people could get around things if they wanted to. And then you've got this gigantic emerging um, private space sector. And at some point, the two are going to clash. There's no way they can they can both continue. Um, and so at some point, the outer space treaty is going to need to be rewritten. Um, and at the moment, it looks like the, the, the biggest possibility is that the private sector is just going to just going to walk all over it essentially. Mm. Um, so it's interesting to see how that that's going to play out. And yeah, the Outer Space Treaty is, is a not very well known document, I think, outside of of uh, fellow space geeks. But um, mm. it's it's really uh, it's really interesting. And, and uh, it, it was actually the way it was put together was was incredible because it was signed obviously during during the Cold War was going on. Um, and it still managed to get all the major spacefaring nations to sign up to it, um, but unfortunately, it's outdated, and it is it, that situation is coming to a head now. In terms of the major governments who are signed up to the treaty, uh, would any of them would any of them break away from it, or or do you think that the that the real threat is from the the, the commercial space sector to break away from it? Um, yeah, I, I think the real threat, unfortunately, it is the private sector lobbying governments to break away from it, to call for it to change. Um, you've got Ted Cruz, the, the Texas senator in, uh, in America, um, and he's already made kind of comments that suggest we need to look again at this. And, he, and he's obviously um, one of these American politicians which is, who's pretty much for sale um, for the, to the highest bidder. <laughs> um, I don't think it's too controversial to say that. Um, if you look at his his record of, of money is taken from from different uh, corporate entities, um, and and so I think that's the way it will go. Basically, it will be politicians and governments um, putting this forward on behalf of, of the of the private companies who, who are lobbying them. Can you give me a really good example of a of something that's in the Outer Space Treaty that that is is just the low hanging fruit that's going to get trashed first of all? Yeah, so I think, I mean, what definitely needs to change, what, what I mean, the ultimate goal, I would say, is the, is the thing that says you can't colonize or, or claim ownership of any part of space. Um, so if, if you take that, for example, to the moon, it means that you can't say any part of the moon is your own. And um, if anybody wants to gather resources from the moon um, at any point, if they want to, to extract you know, hydrogen and, and turn the moon into a into a gigantic petrol station um then it's that that's really not going to work if you if you are abiding by the outer space treaty by by how it's written um that so there have always been already been ways to go around that america has already said that you can extract resources from the moon without claiming ownership of that land um which is good in theory until somebody actually tries to extract resources from the moon and then someone lands nearby and, and the dust wrecks all of their equipment and, and ruins their operation. Um, so I think, um, yeah, that, that's the main one that, that, that they're going for is that, is that main part of the Outer Space Treaty because you just, it, it just seems completely impractical to be able to, um, to, to set up, I guess, a mining business and not own it, own any of the land. Um, 
Well, yeah, particularly considering, I guess, that one of the sort of biggest expenses is actually prospecting the land in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's one of those things where everyone's um, kind of playing nice and, and, and trying to kind of tiptoe around it. But throughout human history, as soon as we've found a resource anywhere, I mean, all hell breaks loose, basically. And, and that's exactly what's going to happen uh, in space, I imagine, just, just the same as it's ha- happened on, on the Earth. Is there any is there any kind of parallels between that and say the the Arctic or or any of those kind of or the Antarctic where you've got a kind of treaty about u- the use of resources? Is there is there any parallels to draw there? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely parallels. So some of the I spoke to a few space lawyers. There's a kind of small community of space lawyers who are fascinating people and argue amongst each other as as much as you'd imagine space lawyers mm-hmm. to argue. Um, and uh, and they, there's a lot of powers to be drawn with with the situation in the Antarctic of whether you can take resources and and, and own something, um, and also international kind of shipping waters come up a lot um, it, uh, as a as a comparison to the Outer Space Treaty in terms of how you can govern a a part of the world or, or the universal space which which doesn't come under any any laws. Um, so there are some things that, that do have a, a kind of precedence that you can follow. Um, but obviously, it's, it's not a perfect comparison. You can't just take those rules and, and, uh, and apply them directly to space. So is, is, any of the, is any of the associations or the societies or, or governments actually trying to draft any kind of new treaty or any, anything like that? Or have got good ideas about this? Um, yeah, I mean, there's the... the I think there are. It's constantly being discussed. Um, I haven't seen anything where, where someone's saying Let, let's go ahead and do this. Let's, I think what the space lawyers really want to happen is, is everyone to sit down and, and include the private sector and include the governments. Uh, I think the most likely organisation that, that would facilitate that would be the UN. Um, uh, but but it, it seems to be slow. I mean, what I realised throughout writing the book was that everything's moving very slowly in, in this respect. And whereas the progress that's being made towards actually achieving the goals, um, like, like uh, putting commercial operations on the moon, are going much faster. So it's kind of slow progress. It's not fast enough. It needs to be done a lot quicker. And, and people, it's, it's hard like anything that's, that's kind of futuristic. It's hard to get anyone to really sit up and pay attention and think about it because they just think it's sci-fi um but i think it's one of those things which is going to creep up on on the world and realize oh we're we're very unprepared for this yeah i mean we, we kind of already are unprepared aren't we? we we we've already got problems with say uh space debris and sort of overcrowding in in low earth orbit and the and medium earth orbit and geostationary orbit and things like that is so it doesn't it doesn't really look that good does it for sort of that kind of cooperation to actually get things sorted out because you're right i think things are moving super fast all of a sudden and we could uh, and then although i'm skeptical about how fast things can move and whether we're a decade away or five decades away from from mining on the moon but it's 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 clear that we need to start thinking about it now yeah definitely i think yeah, I'm kind of the same. I, I sometimes I think, oh, this is great; it's going to happen in the next fifteen years. And other times, it's no, this is still going to take another fifty years. Um, 
but it certainly is something that we need to start thinking about before someone tries it in a very dangerous way, for example. Um, mm. If there are no regulations and we don't have these these laws in place, um, and yeah, you, you can see you can see what's happened with the space debris with the satellites, um, and everyone kept telling me when I was doing the reporting for the book that you know it's going to take a major incident for people to to take notice. Um, and the really scary thing about the, the space debris is that the, that major incident could have already happened. Um, there could already be a, a, a kind of unavoidable and gathering um, cloud of space debris just hurtling around the planet. Um, yeah. So, um, well, I mean, there's been <laughs> there's been a major incident, hasn't there? I mean, American satellite crashed with a a Russian one, and then you've got. Chinese shooting down their own satellite, but yeah, yeah. having spoke spoken to yeah a European, someone working at the European Space Agency in the collision control control room, they were saying that they're pretty convinced there's already a, a Kessler event going on, even though it's going to yeah. take you know hundreds of years. But yeah, that the signs are already there that that's yeah, like you said, it's it's already happening. It's it's, it's quite frightening, isn't it? That so yeah, I mean, in terms of planetary protection, that. There's, there is like a, a really big issue there, isn't there? Because I, I saw an article that was quite an interesting, Every, you know, obviously everyone's been very excited about Starship, but I did see one article that was sort of saying that, of course, there's some moral dilemmas here, that if suddenly we can take lots of people to Mars or, well, to Mars in particular, they were saying, but we haven't checked whether there's actually native life there at the moment. And if we do find it, we've really got to press pause on, sending hundreds of people in spacecraft to, to land there. Um, where do you think planetary protection actually fits in with, with this, particularly in relation to Mars and uh, Titan and Europa and all these other places that could actually have biological life on them? Yeah, I, th I think it's a huge issue. And again, it's something that, I mean, that one's even harder to get people to think about because not only are you talking about... Um, humans traveling to other planets you're also talking to life about life on other planets um <laughs> so getting a getting a politician or a lawmaker to, to think about that is is almost impossible you'll just get laughed out, out of whichever government you you're talking to um but yeah it's a huge issue one, one of the people i spoke to for the book actually um is a guy called uh, george church who's mm. he's actually one of the um the pioneers of CRISPR. yeah um and one of the things he spoke about was was essentially creating pathogen-free humans, um, so putting humans in a in a bubble essentially on Earth um, and removing all pathogens from their environment, so they would essentially be be completely pathogen-free when they were then sent off uh, into space to to explore. Um, so there are people thinking about it, which is good. Um, but it, it has to be regulation. It has to be something that's written into law. Um, that's exactly the type of thing that should be in the Outer Space Treaty or, or any document that governs what we do in space. Um, but we're way off thinking about that in terms of regulation. You briefly actually touched on one of my favourite chapters in the in the book, certainly the title of it as well, The, the Human Tardigrade. I know that that's, uh, George Church comes up in that. Um, it kind of touches on one of my kind of favorite subjects in terms of of the objection to humans going into space can you tell us a bit more about that kind of little chapter in the book yeah yeah i think that was one of my favorites to write as well um uh, and just the, the idea of, of kind of changing a human um the, the human genome to create the the uh 
the perfect astronaut, I guess, um, and the perfect space explorer. Um, and it shows the kind of the, the, the lengths that, that we could go to, to, to make this happen. Um, and it's one of those things that I think if governments, um, if, if we were just having government led exploration efforts, then it, it would never, ever happen. Um, but if you throw the private sector in the, into the mix, then they're much more likely to uh, accelerate something like using CRISPR to make a perfect human. Um, when I say a perfect human, someone, someone, I guess, who's more radiation resistant, um, who can deal better with um, with different gravity levels. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's weird talking to these guys like George Church and, and asking him, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? And he basically says, yes, we can do anything. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's scary in one way, um, <laughs> but it's also extreme, <laughs> extremely exciting at the same time. It depends on how you look at it. Yeah, and I think that whole issue of gene editing is comparable to space, where it's it's like it, it's too it's too sci-fi like for people to really, really you know people don't want to touch it, people don't want to put regulation on it. Um, whereas I think obviously there's a lot more people who are against gene editing than there are space exploration, but um, just with the the right regulation and laws, I think both of them could thrive. And it's it's weird that they could actually help each other probably. Yeah, it's 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 it really is one of my favourite subjects that the the gene editing thing. I mean, I, I can't believe the the story you start that chapter with the the doctor he who edited the two babies to be HIV resistant. I think is one of the most shocking scientific stories of last year. That it should be one of the most major scientific stories of all time. I would think, but yeah, it's it's. Yeah. I, I think you're right that the fact that that news kind of didn't become a kind of uh, a bigger story I think is because people don't understand it and people don't realize the kind of the hugeness of that particular story but it certainly could be an absolutely major part of space exploration couldn't it yeah yeah definitely and I think it also can can kind of give a a lesson to people um in the space exploration um sector because it's the thing with Dr. He in China, he proved that if we can do something, then it will happen. Um, there's there's no point in saying these people that say, "Oh, we, you know, why?" A lot of people ask me, "Why, why write a book about space?" You know, we have all these problems on Earth. Um, why explore? Why is space exploration important? And it's one of the most irrelevant questions I get, and I try and say that <laughs> without being too rude. Yeah. Um, because it's going to happen. And when you throw in the private sector and, and money to be made, it makes it even more likely it's going to happen faster. Um, and that's the same thing with gene editing. People that think, people are saying, you know, you know should we do this? That, that's irrelevant. Someone will do it if it's illegal or not. Um, and we're going to have to deal with the circumstances. It's it's dealing with how it, it's going to be done, I think, is the, is the more pertinent question. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I think a lot of the kind of concerns and and things that we were just uh, we I've, we've recently were covering uh, Gerald Gerald and O'Neill and and that era of the the Club of Rome era of of uh, society in the sort of mid seventies, and yeah. it's quite funny because a lot of those feelings have come back right back to the to the forefront again with with climate change and everyone's starting to to rethink about this uh, limited resources again. So I think 
It's funny, isn't it? It's 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 O'Neill's response to the limited resources was we've got to get out into space, and and it's it's funny that Jeff Bezos is is doing the same sort of thing, but yeah. like you said, the Outer Space Treaty is not particularly helpful, is it, for those for for that kind of uh, expansion into space? Yeah, no, it's not at all. Um, so if you if you take Musk's theory of, of the plan b that we need somewhere else um just in case the earth is destroyed then the outer space treaty stops that because you couldn't set up a colony on another planet um that would be an illegal colony um and, and with bezos's theory that we just need to take um basically move all manufacturing to the moon um if, if we played out that scenario then that that couldn't happen if the if the outer space treaty stayed, stayed the same so if you if you have kind of the the world's richest man and one of the world's most influential men, I guess, um, going up against, you know, the outer space treaty, you can really see how it's not going to survive. Um, and it, and it does need to be changed. So in, as a kind of wrap up, where do you, how do you envisage the, the, it moving forward or what would be say a couple of scenarios of it moving forward? Your, your desired, uh, scenario and maybe the worst case scenario. Um, so I guess the, the desired scenario would be, uh, and I, I'm I'm not completely against the private sector. I think it's it's still it's got a huge role to play in, in space exploration. I think the, the the absolute best case scenario is that is that the commercial sector, the governments, and everyone sit down and and, and decide what's best for. Um, I guess acknowledge first of all that 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 space is not something where you can be purely profit driven, um, and you do have to have that larger mission in mind. That we do have to everything we do in space should benefit the whole of humanity. It shouldn't just benefit the bank balance of, of one person or or um, certain a select few investors. Um, so that's one thing we we have to kind of establish going forward in in the private sector of space. Um, and kind of have that as a benchmark for everything else that, that's set forward in terms of regulation and, and laws in the future. Um, and I think I think the absolute worst case scenario is that we take everything that is wrong with capitalism and and, uh, and industry here on on Earth and and just take it to space. Um, if we are going to colonize another planet, if we are going to set up manufacturing or mining on on different planets or the moon. Um, then it, it, if it's done with, with the wrong mindset, then it could be really dangerous. We're just going to amplify the problems that we have here on Earth. Um, and it is an opportunity, if you do set up a colony on a different planet, it, it's an opportunity to take the best of humanity to that planet and really make a shining example of you know no inequality, no, um, no, no environmental problems, no, nothing like that. Um, so... Yeah, it's a huge opportunity, and, and and I guess the best case scenario is that we actually sit down and sort this before it becomes too late. And the worst case scenario is we ignore it and we just go off into space to colonize it or to 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 do business with with the worst of 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 our characteristics um, <laughs> at heart. Yeah, I mean it's it's a bit uh, it's a bit Star Trek versus the Expanse, isn't it? Really, it's it's like yeah. the, the utopian space exploration versus. Perhaps something that I, I I fear is probably a little bit more realistic, and because, yeah, how how on earth how on earth do we get governments around the world and 
the commercial sector all to sit down and sort of have a conversation uh, that feels, um, for, for want of a better thing, a, a kind of uto- almost like a sort of hippie utopian dream. We, we, we know from history that that never seems to pan out that way when there's money involved. Yeah, 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 definitely. I think the one thing that does give me hope is that the, the individuals which are driving this, like Elon Musk and, and to a certain extent Bezos as well, I mean, you can say what you want about them, but I think on uh, Earth-based matters, but I think in terms of space, they do have the right attitude. Um, it, it's it's the kind of people that will come off the back of them that will use their, their kind of services to get into space and, and whether they'll have the same kind of attitude that we need to help humanity, not just not just make money that uh that kind of worries me yeah, yeah it is a, yeah it's quite worrying because actually elon musk did uh, made a quite a good comment about how uh your the, the results of the, the things that you make a company make actually reflect the way that your company is set up so if, yeah. if, if we look at the way that uh, i guess amazon works it, that presumably wasn't wouldn't be your uh, utopian view of how uh, a, a, an industrialized space might work. Yeah, yeah, that would be terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> if, we, if we kind of turn the moon into a gigantic Amazon fulfillment center, um, that would be, I guess, one of the worst case scenarios. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 yeah. It, I, I, it's a really interesting one, isn't it? The 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 how you drive equality would be one of the very very hardest issues because the way that space starts in the in the first place although I, sp- you, I suppose you could take you could take the founding of america as an example couldn't you i suppose as, as a sort of new frontier and it feels yeah. and, I, and i guess the, uh, the americas feels slightly more progressive than where they came from at the time yeah, yeah, and there's actually some comparisons that are actually made between the, the expansion of the railroads and where we are now in space um, in terms of expanding the frontier uh, in that kind of scenario than SpaceX and, and Blue Origin and, like, the, the the railroad, they're building the railroads, essentially, and expanding us into new places, and, and what's going to come now are, are the the, uh, the guys that are going to set up the saloons and the and the uh, the mining operations in, in new territories. Um, fortunately, obviously, there's no known native population for them to to kind of plow through. But uh, it's well, well, um, well. I, I suspect, other than maybe possible microbial life on Mars, I suppose that yeah. that, that, that that would become the new Native American, wouldn't it? I suppose. Yeah. In some yeah. It, for some for some people, I think that that would. It's almost like a deal breaker for for a lot of people, isn't it? That you can't just go to a planet that's actually inhabited no matter yeah. who it's inhabited by. Yeah, no, and it's definitely something that should be taken into consideration. It, it's it's weird that, that it's taken so long for us to think that. I think it's because people still doubt that we're going to find any life, and I think it's it's kind of inevitable now that, that there is something on Mars. Um, so, um, Yeah, I mean, yeah. and if you're right about that one sentence, I, I think it's going to be just the most... I think there's going to be a lot of celebrating on the day that, that we find life on Mars and then a couple of days later we'll start to have the real hangover of of what it actually means. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I guess for some of the guys trying to get to Mars, it's almost like 
when you see these big companies ready to build a new factory and then they find some um, endangered species of frog lives. <laughs> yeah. It scuppers all of their planning. Um, but yeah, it's, it's going to cause, it's going to completely shake things up for, for both the private sector and, and any space exploration. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that and amongst other kind of lots of other psychological issues about no longer being the only life in the in the cosmos and everything <laughs> everything yeah. else so it's yeah, it will be a pretty monumental time <coughs> where can uh, where can people where can people buy your book and yeah uh, remind us when what what when it comes out yeah so it's it's out on october 15th um and it's available on amazon um i think waterstones in the uk um all, all the kind of major major book places and is that is is that a, is that worldwide as well? Is that in the US as well? Yeah, yeah. So it's in the US on on Amazon, and it's uh, it's uh, yeah. I I forget the major booksellers over here, so I, I'm always thinking UK. But um, <laughs> well, I think I think Amazon and, and Waterstones are fairly major over there, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure we have Waterstones. Oh, well, maybe yeah. not Waterstones. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Thank, thanks very much for coming on. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a really good, it's a really timely book, uh, especially in in light of the fact that Elon Musk seems to be suddenly moving at very great pace. So it's it's definitely a conversation that people really, really need to have. Uh, yeah, thank you, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, thanks very much for coming on the show. No problem, it's been a pleasure. Great, Brit- great talking to you. There we go, Jamie. Well, that's ace. I think we should wrap this one up because I, we're, it's very early in the morning, isn't it, Jamie? And and it I'm is. Sort of, and I'm speaking it, a bit quietly today because I'm in a, I'm in a hotel in Amsterdam, and I'm in topped I'm, over to Sin City, do a bit of work, and um, yeah. everyone else is asleep around me. Oh I'm no! Not in a room with anyone else, but the hotel yeah, walls are very yeah. thin. I know you and Tinder, um, Jamie. <laughs> the, the uh, I'm I'm yes I'm I'm sitting in the sofa of my I'm sitting in the lounge of my sister's house and I can hear her children getting up for school. That's how early it is. I've managed to do a yeah. podcast before. This is what this is what we do for, for people, isn't it? Mm, mm, mm. You know our commitment yeah, to space. Quick one, Jamie. Yeah, we've just had an electron launch successful. And a Pegasus oh, yeah. launch. I think that might be the last one with with Icon. That's a really interesting satellite. I, I want to talk about Icon some other Get time. In. But yeah, a couple of quite cool launches, those. So um, uh, we've got so many great interviews coming up, Jamie. Uh, we've, got, we've got we've loads got loads in the bag. We've got we absolutely we loads. Would. Yeah, I, I might have to stick one of them onto the Patreon feed because we, we, we've got literally stacks of them. Uh, the, the, That's the kind the, of thing we do up. with our patrons. How do you become a Patreon, Matt? Uh, you just whip over to www.interplanetary.org.uk. Sounds like you get hella bennies. You get hella bennies. The best benny, I, I think, is is uh, dropping into the Discord. And actually, as we speak, Justin and Mark have joined us in the discord and those two have been absolute legends often uh emailing and sent and sending me stuff mark is a is absolutely super cool and uh, has uh, does lots of um modular synth stuff which is pretty cool so he likes he likes listening to oh, the show because we, obviously we, yeah, we occasionally talk well. about synths and stuff 
<laughs> and yeah. uh, Justin as well, he's been super, super cool, of, often sending me loads of uh, cool uh, insights and, and messages. And is always really, really super nice about the show as well, which is really cool. It's so nice when we hear from people that they love the show because it keeps us going, doesn't it, Jamie, on these it cold It does keep us going. Lovely, lovely mornings. people. Jamie, I'm going to let you go so that you don't annoy the rest of your hotel guests. They thank you. And um, I bid you all a good weekend. Yeah, have a good weekend, Spodcats. And as Jamie would say, don't forget to look up. Try and catch Orion. Please do. I know it's a bit rainy at the moment, but... Uh, yeah, not, still hasn't been great, has it, for star stargazing? Well, maybe you could just close your eyes and imagine. Imagine Im your Alexi floating out oh, into the yes. dark void. Don't imagine the sweat and the near-death experiences, but the beautiful bits. Yeah. Okay. I think he still enjoyed I think he still enjoyed it though, Jamie. I think he enjoyed yeah. it quite a lot. Definitely. Bye-bye, Spot Cats. Goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>